The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled, just as you heard it. Everyone was raving about Jesus, so impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, Undoubtedly you will quote this, saying to me, Doctor, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. He said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to the widow in the city of Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman, the Syrian, was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Good morning, friends. It is so good to be here with you all. If you uh, didn't catch it, my name is Emily McKinley, and I uh, have the great joy of serving now as uh, your senior pastor. And if you didn't catch it, you weren't paying attention. But uh, if you talk about me, you can use the pronouns she, her, and hers. 
Less than four months ago, I was viewing this space through the ones and zeros on my computer as I watched Lucia, Sarah, and Kenny announce that I had accepted the call to serve as your next senior pastor. And it has been my wonder and joy to see the ways in which the Spirit not only guided me through a deep and careful process of discernment, but also prepared all of you. Since that day, I've heard from many of you about the anticipation and joy that folks have as we look toward this next chapter of life together as God's people. And as I and my family transitioned from San Francisco, those kind and welcoming words became coordinated efforts to supply us with living essentials as our household items made their way from Chicago. These words were then baked, broiled, fried, and stewed up in the form of home-cooked meals that tasted like community and love. Thank you. Thank you for helping our family to feel so welcomed and cared for. And thank you for inviting me to join with you on the tremendous journey of following in the way of Jesus. And so let's begin. Let's pray. God of all the things that have been and all the things yet to be, we thank you for the ways in which you continually surprise us and invite us into your next. Help us to look back with gratitude, taking all of what has been good and nourishing and courage building, turning it into a seedbed of yeses for all that would bring our way, you would bring our way. As we look to what you have to say to us today, I ask that you would clear away the clutter in our hearts and our minds so that we might be fully present and attentive to the ways that you are challenging us, inviting us, and reminding us that you are present and active in our spirits and in the world. Speak through me, in spite of me, and also because of me, that in the end we might participate in your work of wholeness of life for all, wherever we may find ourselves. Amen. One month ago, I was headed to Seattle, Washington, where I and my family drove three, three hours to Fields Point Landing, nestled in the Cascade Mountains on the central west side of Lake Chelan. From there, we took an express boat two hours north to the Lucerne docks before boarding a bus that barreled us 3,000 feet up into the Okanagan Wenatchee Forest. And there we arrived at a repurposed copper mining encampment to be part of the teaching faculty at a kind of camp for intellectually minded Christian slash theology nerds called Holden Village. It was, to say the least, a journey with an 18-month-old and a seven-year-old. And it was there in that old copper mining village in the Okanagan Wenatchee Forest of the Cascade Mountains where I sat with God and God's people in the creation that I like to call God's sanctuary to teach and learn and explore what it means to be part of God's life-giving, loving, and liberating mandate through the practice and celebration of Jubilee in this world during these days. Jubilee, an ancient biblical concept which is, in short, a proclamation of rest, release, and liberation for people for the land, and for our economic systems. The Hebrew scriptures describes Jubilee as the seventh cycle of Sabbath years, which is another way of saying 49 years, which Jason reminded me also are the dimensions of San Francisco, which means <laughs> something, but I'm not sure what. Regardless, Jubilee is the Sabbath of Sabbaths, when everyone and everything collectively hits the reset button on all the things. Debt, enslavement, wealth accumulation, work schedules, productivity margins, they all just are no longer relevant. The only thing that matters is a nap and a walk and a long lunch that turns into dinner with friends and neighbors. Connection with ourselves, with God, and all the manifestations of God rest and restoration in the deepest, most radical, and most profound sense. It is this jubilee ideal that Jesus is referring to in the first part of what I like to call his coming out 
sermon at his home church. The year of the Lord's favor is joyful, hopeful, and comforting. Initially, everyone is applauding, amazed at how well he spoke. Look at little Jesus, all grown up. Isn't he precious? But the applause has come too soon. Instead of leaving things in the happy place, Jesus takes a hard left. He goes on, undoubtedly you will say to me, do here in your hometown what you've heard, we've heard you do in Capernaum. I assure you that no prophet is welcome in their hometown. And now I know that some of you know this, how many of us have found ourselves as grown adults returning home to only find ourselves wedged back into the same roles we worked so hard to overcome. I'm an adult. <laughs> it's as old a circumstance as the Bible itself. Or as the Gospel of Mark put it, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. Can I get an amen? amen? And I kind of prefer Mark's version, actually, because what happens next is exactly that. Jesus loses his honor, at least in the eyes of his home church. What he says next is so insulting to them, they cannot contain themselves. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time when there was a great drought and food shortages in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. The story of Elijah going to the widow in Sidon is a sore reminder that God's prophet found sacrificial hospitality not from his own people, but from a poor, negligible, and socially useless woman. And to make matters worse, she was a Canaanite, which is basically the sworn enemies of Israel. How sway. And then Jesus goes in harder. Also, there were a lot of people with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one cleansed was Naaman, the Syrian, which is also a sick burn if you knew what Jesus was talking about, which they do. A young enslaved Israelite girl tells Naaman, a non-Israelite army commander who suffers from leprosy, to go and see the prophet Elisha for healing. Naaman tells the king about, his king about this, and the king, his king writes a letter to the king of Israel, who instead of thinking, oh, what a great way to showcase God's power, instead thinks, Elisha? This is a trap. This dude is trying to pick a fight with me, and he tears his clothes in dismay. Elisha hears about this and says, what's the big deal? Send Naaman my way. Naaman comes and is healed, and so it was that God's healing work and restoration was demonstrated not because of the faithfulness of Israel's king, supposedly the scion of the faith, but because of a young enslaved girl's witness and a foreigner's willingness to present himself to God. So Jesus is preaching to his home church, the people who taught him about God, who nurtured his faith. And instead of making them feel warm and fuzzy about the part they played in helping him to become who he is, Jesus decides to engage in what therapists might call self-differentiation. They heard the words coming out of his mouth and moved pretty quickly from gushing about to rushing him out, threatening to throw him over the nearest cliff. It's a wonder he wasn't completely traumatized. But not only is he not traumatized, he goes out and goes on preaching these outlandish sermons that make everyone feel some kind of way. Sermons about caring for the widows and the poor, the liberation and the oppressed, and how blindly following all the rules and being a good Christian, of course he meant Jew, but that doesn't make sense for us here, how all of that means nothing to God. And this is where it starts. Actually, no. Where it starts is when Jesus was baptized. And then just before this passage ends up, as Stephen mentioned earlier, uh, on, on a totally bogus backpacking trip through the wilderness. And it's here in this wilderness where Jesus finds his body deprived, his ego stripped, 
away and his faith tested. Let's just call it an ayahuasca trip that lasted far too long and went very, very wrong. Or right? However you look at it, Jesus returns home with a lot of clarity and zero Fs because he comes in, walks down the aisle, unrolls that scroll, and just lays into his fam, which, as we see, does not go down very well. And the passage sort of makes it seem like Jesus did some kind of Red Sea jujitsu, right? Parting the crowd and walking through them like Neo dodging bullets in the Matrix. But here's what ha- I think happened. They picked him up and ran toward the cliff. But then then I think they thought about his mom, one of the most, if not the most, upright and faithful person that they knew. And then they remember Joseph, the quiet but steady anchor in the community who was always willing to fix your table or your chairs or your internet whenever it went down. (laughs) And maybe, too, they thought of Jesus himself, such a helpful young man who was the first one out there to comfort folks when they were down or fetch water for you whenever your hands were full. No one ever said anything, but his water always left you feeling a little tipsy. (laughs) Just go away, they say. And he looks each of them in the eye before passing through. They watch him walk away, and somehow their anger has become sadness. And they are left with an unsettled feeling in their spirits. What happened? It'd be really easy to read this passage and think that Jesus was coming to drop a big old mic on them. On the one hand, it's sort of true. What Jesus did was hold up a mirror so they could really see themselves as they were. But I wonder, I wonder if it's something else altogether that he's trying to do. Maybe they think Jesus was dishonoring them because he said what he said and made them feel what they feel. But what if Jesus was actually trying to honor them? Think about it. This, coming to the community that had loved him and raised him, this is the first thing he does when he returns from the wilderness. What if he was coming in after this incredibly spiritually powerful experience and thinking, I have to tell them what I learned? After all, this is his family of faith. These are the people who taught him about God's love and God's vision of wholeness of life for all and about what it means to be God's people in the world. Maybe he thought that they would be amazed and proud, which, to be fair, they were, at least at first. But then, maybe he was also a little nervous, because he perceived that it would probably not go down that way, that this moment would burn all the bridges he had ever built. And while they probably wouldn't kill him, they would never be able to look at him the same way. Jesus had encountered complete and utter clarity about who he was, what he was for, and where he had to go. He was made free in the deepest and fullest sense of the word, and he couldn't pretend that it hadn't changed him. And so he came out. He came out to his family of faith with the fullness of who he was, and and it cost him everything. What does it mean to be free? What does it cost us? And why would you even try if it's so dang hard? These questions are, in many ways, the primary thrust of all of Jesus' ministry and message. It's also the questions that we'll be unpacking in the weeks to come. We are set free, Jesus tells us later, so that we might have life, and life abundant, not just to get through each day, not just one foot in front of the other, but full to the brim, pressed down and shaken together. 
But the chasm between here and there can feel near impossible, right? And without Jesus showing us the way, maybe it is. Because freedom takes courage. It takes humility. And well, as one person saying, freedom ain't free. Liberation, and particularly the kind that God invites us toward, is not a one-time event. It is an unfolding an unfolding of self-understanding, of ongoing vulnerability, and of daring bravely, yes, daring bravely, Brene Brown, into the spaces and faces that may have once seen you as safe, but now understand that you are a threat. Even Jesus himself shows us that you can have the right words, but still be on the learning edge of your own teaching. You might recall that Jesus highlighted this story about the widow from Zarephath near Sidon to his home church, and yet... And yet, midway through his own ministry, he reveals his prejudices against the very same people. A presumably single mother rushes out of her home as Jesus is passing through Sidon, and she begs him to heal her epileptic daughter. He not only refuses to help, but also calls her a dog. A woman with no shame running out into the streets to confront a celebrity preacher? She's lucky he didn't call the police on her. But then she holds up a mirror to him and demonstrates that her courage is greater than his contempt. Oh, woman, he admits. Great is your faith. And he realizes that for all of his degrees and accomplishments, in spite of how many times he's gone viral and how many Instagram followers he has, regardless of all the ways he had been a voice for justice and inclusion, saying all the right things at all the right times, at times standing in the front of the, of the rallies, for all of the deep spiritual knowledge he holds within him and all the commitment he has demonstrated in his walking and talking and praying and healing, he still has work to do. And so do we. You are here because you know it. And I'm here because I know it. For me, and for you, and for all of us together. Jesus declared that the Spirit of God was upon him and that she had sent him to preach good news, but the truth is that this good news is not good news for everyone. Or at least it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like good news for those who benefit from the oppression of others, which in one way or another is all of us in this room. It doesn't seem like good news for those of us who are afraid to confront of the ways in which we might participate in our own oppression because it means disrupting some very familiar and strangely comforting habits. And it certainly didn't seem like good news for those gathered in that little country church way back when, when Jesus rolled up that scroll and walked out. It may not seem like good news, but it is life-giving news. It is liberating news. And it is loving news. And so let's, with all the humility in our hearts and all the hope that is in Jesus Christ, declare the year of the Lord's favor and proclaim jubilee in this place and in this time, not because it's here in all the ways that it should be, but because God is among us in all the ways that God needs to be. And wherever God is, jubilee is possible. As we enter this chapter of life together as City Church San Francisco and friends, let us do so with the same number of F's that Jesus had so long ago to come out in the fullness of who we are, to be who we were created to be, and to work toward a world where this can be true, not just for us and people like us, but for everyone and all of creation. And for that, I say thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we are grateful that you invite us to be participants in your jubilee work. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to be people of courage, courage to see the ways that we are not living up to who we want to be, 
courage to invite each other into a deeper way of alignment with you, and the courage to go out into the world and be your mouthpiece of love, of healing, of restoration, and liberation in every aspect of our lives. We pray this with trust and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.